0: Hello everyone and welcome to the New Book Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today we'll be talking with Tim Kledge, the author of In Living Towns: Shadow, Poverty in America's Wealthiest post Suburb. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. It's been a beautiful day here in New York. Now, I wonder if you could start by telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. Um, well, I was born on Long
1: Island and that probably... Explains how I think I started on the project um, because you know, I grew up there, spent most of my life uh, on Long Island, and um, I went to community college actually. And it was in community college where I took a class called Racism in the Modern World. And it was about the whole world, of course, but my professor, uh, my history professor there, just off the cuff mentioned that Long Island was um, one of the most segregated places in America. And it kind of shocked me. You know, I, 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 you know my, my high school was diverse. I, I couldn't imagine. Um, and then when I drove home from co- college that day, back back home, I suddenly saw it. Like if I was driving through neighborhoods, I'm like, oh, my God, it, it is there. It is. You know, this professor was completely right. Um, and so long story short, from there, I kind of, number one, I was, got fascinated with history. And number two, it was kind of this lingering question that just stuck with me really for like 20 years, and the book is kind of an outcome of understanding where I grew up, but also kind of trying to answer that question and that that comment that that professor made so many years ago.
0: Now, you started the book with a description of Dorothy. Tell us about her story and why it's so important to this book.
1: Yeah, well, um, Dorothy Daniels, you know, she's a suburbanite, in the sense that she lives in suburban Long Island. And Long Island's famous, it's kind of epitomizes suburbia because that's the home of Levittown, the most famous of all the post-war American suburbs. But Dorothy Daniels definitely doesn't have that typical suburban story. Um, you know, she's a single mother raising a, bu- a bunch of kids, um, and she lives in a house, but she doesn't own the house, which is not typical of suburban home homeownership after World War II. And uh, instead she rents. And of course, not only does she rent, but she, you know, she makes very low income. She's a, a, a domestic worker, meaning she, you know, cleans people's homes. And so her, her pay is very low and therefore she has to rely on at the time it was, was welfare rent to help pay. And so therefore she's paying a landlord to live in a single family home. And of course his landlord is making a ton of money by keeping maintenance very, very low. And so despite the fact that she lives in a house, it's only like 15 years old. It's completely falling apart Of course, she's not the first tenant. She's the most recent tenant. And so she's suburban in the sense that she lives there, but she doesn't kind of, she's cleaning other people's homes who are enjoying that suburban prosperity. But Dorothy Daniels herself is not at all kind of reaping the benefits of all the kind of work she's putting in or the place where she lives. And so I used her in the beginning of the book to kind of, you know, illustrate the kind of Problem we often have when we think about suburbs. We think of them as prosperous places where people have upward mobility, they own homes, and they live these comfortable lives. And that's true for some suburbanites, but there were 200,000 people like her on the island. And of course, there were millions of people like her across the country in, in America's suburbs, not doing so well, struggling uh, to work and to live.
0: Now, why does a discussion of poverty matter so much today?
1: Um, That's that's a good question, Um, and for a few reasons. Um, Number one, I would say the first thing that um, scholars and scientists, in particular social scientists, have realized is that since the year 2000, actually, there are more poor people living in suburbs for the last 25 quarter century than there are poor people living in cities or rural areas. So actually, poverty is now much more a suburban phenomenon, even though probably in the 20th century, it wasn't thought of as such i uh, usually thought of as an urban or rural phenomenon like the other America kind of, you know, uh, outside of the kind of suburban comfort. And so understanding the history of this suburban poverty is very important to understand our contemporary struggles. But the other reason I argue in the book that understanding uh, poverty is so important in suburbs is because, you know, Long Island, one example, but maybe the best, um, was the richest place, was literally the richest place in America after World War II. And despite that, one in nine households lived in poverty. So to understand how do people who live in such a prosperous area, why were they poor, um, helps us kind of understand kind of what creates poverty, what makes you know what, what what produces poverty in in America, and I use that as a lens to understand both its root causes, and also there therefore to understand you know what we may be able to do about poverty in the twenty first century.
0: Now in chapter one you talk about. Um discrimination in hiring practices that excluded so many um, people from employment. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Sure. So the one thing I kind of focus on in the book itself, and it begins in chapter one, is this question of, of power. And of course, power is a vague term. <laughs> but you know, when we mean power, we mean, you know, the power of, of you know, the power people have to make choices. And Oftentimes, especially in, you know, and I don't mean to use this vague term, but, you know, in, in a capitalist employment situation, right? Employers, the people who hire people in the companies and everything else, have a lot of power over who they hire and how they hire them. And they have particularly benefit when there's a lot more workers than there are jobs, right? Because then they can kind of choose. What ends up happening oftentimes, and employers do, and this is, you know, documented, well-established beyond just my, my own study, is that. When employers have a loose labor market, meaning a labor market with a lot of workers, they oftentimes kind of segment the work, work the workforce, right? And they choose people uh, and they kind of actually create an even bigger supply by limiting jobs in some sectors to, let's just say, in the United States, often by race or gender. And so what ends up happening on the island is that these employers, they are, on Long Island, in the early 20th century, they included things like large estate owners. Um, Long Island was the gold coast. It was the goldest of the gold coasts. If you ever read F. Scott Fitzgerald's um, Great Gatsby, it's based on Long Island. It's basically anyone who was rich had a gigantic mansion on Long Island. It was a place to be. You know, so you had the Carnegies, the Fricks, the um, you know Fords, you name them, J.P. Morgan. They all have these mansions, but they hire people to work in them. And they and the people who are managing their estates hired certain groups of people for certain kinds of jobs. Italian Americans tended to be hired for um, work, you know, um, doing masonry. Um, you know, uh, sometimes they'd hire British servants to be like the show off servants, the people who worked, you know, and went to parties and did the kind of, you know, a serving of food and parties. And they tended increasingly to hire black Southern migrants for the kind of work in in the landscaping, and the nannying, kind of the behind the scenes work that was very important. And so Long Island had this very divided labor market where ethnic groups and racial groups end up being stuck in certain kind of positions. And it's very difficult for them to kind of get out of it because at the end of the day, it's the employer who hires them. And so... Long Island ends up having this kind of inequality among what are otherwise working-class people with similar, you know, kind of working situations, but nonetheless, it becomes divided ethnically um, between Irish, and Polish, uh, Black Southern workers, and others into dur- certain occupational niches. Um, that does change in World War II because World War II creates so much demand for workers, and Long Island becomes such a huge site for aircraft manufacturing that essentially, you know the companies that are the, become these gigantic aerospace corporations, they still try to segment their workers, but A, because there's so much demand for work, and B, because activists begin fighting this discrimination, they successfully get the federal government to break down those barriers, and therefore black workers and others are able to enter into jobs they never had access to before, and therefore that allowed for upward mobility. And so it's kind of twofold. On one hand, there was actual anti-discrimination law, on the other hand, there's this really tight labor market. You know, There's so much need for these workers that they have more power and they can demand things they couldn't have demanded when there's a lot of competition for jobs.
0: Now, tell us about the two themes of your book and why they're so important. If um, you don't mind me asking, which, which two things? <laughs> two themes. Oh, two the themes. One, I'm sorry. Long
1: Island and the policy. Sure. Um, so I use Long Island as a setting because it was the literally the wealthiest place in America as of 1960. And what's important about that is it wasn't wealthy because it had a bunch of millionaires, but it did have some millionaires, but rather it was a site where what we think of as a middle class today, right? And it was the largest middle class, was the fastest growing place east of the Mississippi, had some of the highest rates of job growth, and it literally was the highest median family income in America in 1960. And that's because... Otherwise, you know, modest working class people who many of them are high school educated were able to get good paying jobs and able to get federal mortgage insurance to able to for them to afford homes, you know, single family homes on, you know, yards that are bigger than most people have had in human history. And so that is the site I use to understand why were there people who didn't get this stuff and how didn't they get it? Why didn't they get it? And what did that mean? And so that led me to the other half to show that while these programs were great, number one, they only helped a certain number of people, mostly white families, and the jobs mostly helped white, you know, who became white men. But also there was, you know, the, the government only helped with some things, right? It provided jobs to military co- defense contracting on the island, a lot of you know, jobs building airplanes and missiles and spacecraft. And of course, the government also helped to subsidize mortgages by insuring them, meaning the government basically told banks, hey, lend as much as you want. If the person doesn't pay back, we'll, we'll bail you out. <laughs> but there were a lot of other needs that people had on Long Island elsewhere, daycare, elder care. They needed help with um, you know, finishing these homes. of these homes are actually not finished. They were, um, when you bought a Levitt house, for example, it was only one story. There was a second story on it, but it was an attic. And the attic, of course, had stairs going to it, so they, you know, it was ready to be finished. But they didn't do the extra work. It was a way to save money. So most people who bought these homes, they end up getting like a two-bedroom tiny house. But to get that third bedroom or fourth bedroom upstairs, they had to hire people to finish it. So they weren't quite. They were kind of being sold an unfinished house. And so all these things, um, taxes for schools, everything else, had to be supported outside of the federal government's kind of protections. And that's where the poor came in. They did really important work here. They raised kids. They cleaned homes. They built those second stories. They worked in factories that helped pay school taxes. And they did this work. But, of course, they themselves didn't get to get the same benefits from all those federal programs that lifted these people into the middle class. So, in many ways, um, that prosperity that's so evident on Long Island depended on poverty in this very important way.
0: Chapter 2 and 3, you did an analysis of American welfare state after the war. Tell us why did poverty helped in the prosperity of the suburbanites?
1: Yeah, so it's great you mentioned that. Um, I did focus a lot on what we call the welfare state. When I meant welfare state, I don't just mean, of course, welfare, like in terms of, you know, um, know, food stamps and things like that, but we mean all the policies the government does to kind of prop up people's well-being, right? And that includes minimum wage laws, social security. You can even consider defense contracting. Of course, it was mainly to build up America's defenses, but for a lot of workers and even congressional representatives and labor unions. Those that that defense spending created jobs, and those jobs are so important to people and their well-being. And when congressional people fought over the defense budget every year, it was partly about the jobs coming to their districts. So the welfare state, again, it protected certain things: defense jobs, um, mortgages, and for some people, union rights and minimum wage and other kind of things to help them live a good life. But there are huge gaps. In the welfare state, in the American welfare state after World War II. And they're evident on Long Island because the kind of work that people who were poor tended to do were ones not covered by welfare protections. Domestic workers, people who clean people's homes, people who raise children, their jobs were not protected by minimum wage laws. They didn't get Social Security. They weren't allowed to union, or they didn't have the, you know, the protections to unionize. And no surprise, they made on average about a quarter of what someone who worked in a defense factory made and put them in poverty. Construction laborers, while they could unionize, they were not protected by minimum wage until the 1960s. And that meant for a good 15, 20 years, these people were kind of working outside of regular law, you know, min, uh, workplace protections. And many of them ended up being day laborers waiting every single day for the possibility of a job. And that put them in poverty. But the point is, because they were paid so low, that allowed these things to become affordable for these suburban families. I mean, how else do you raise kids if, you know, you and your wife and about a third of all suburban housewives worked unless you had affordable health or daycare? And there's two ways to make it affordable. Either the government subsidizes it or you find someone who you can pay low enough to help do it. And that was the latter option. that often happened. If you needed to build out your second story house and you don't have the money, you know, you, you can't necessarily, you have to hire somebody and you're going to go for the cheapest price. And it was those subcontractors who had cheap construction day laborers do it for them. And so Long Island's prosperity was built on one hand by federal programs, but on the other, by the gaps in the federal programs that, you know, contractors and daycare services, you know, they took advantage of those gaps to hire people at very, very low wages to help fill in those gaps and meet suburban needs. Um, and I'm not denigrating the people who wanted daycare or eldercare or help, build their second home. They needed these things. It's just the system, that they, the social order they were working in depended on these low wages to make it affordable to them. And that was the tragic outcome of this divide.
0: You know, you really talk about the jobs that paid so low that people couldn't hardly make it. And it was really seen as a great opportunity for someone who made it into a job. You talk about one man who was hired as a chauffeur, so can you tell us about that in terms of the racial and gender hierarchies?
1: Yeah, and so I'm glad you, you mentioned that. You know, the reality is that many of these jobs, low-wage jobs, particularly after World War II, were filled by two kind of categories of people. And, and one was that um, these employers, especially domestic service and others, would hire from the South and particularly, and they were hiring people leaving the Jim Crow South. Um, you know, looking for opportunities themselves, and so a lot of these black Southerners, men and women, were coming north to Long Island, and of course other places as well. And they were filling in these low wage jobs, and so they contributed to a very clear racial inequality on Long Island. Now, there were black homeowners, you know, that were middle class, that you know made good money, or engineers, and you know, and they worked in school, public school teachers, everything else. But disproportionately, black workers tended to be workers that were working in these low wage jobs. In addition, because there was no real support for women to work, um, with families who you were know, the women did have to contribute to income, which is about a third of all Long Island families, um, these suburban moms had to find jobs where they can manage and kind of manage between working and taking care of kids and the house and everything else. And employers took advantage of them as well. <laughs> and that meant that they, you know, could hire them for or you know, jobs that were seasonal, or they would hire them for jobs that were only with certain hours at school and part time, so you don't have to pay them full time and the benefits and and many of the categories that women tended to work in were ones that were not protected by minimum wage or social security like retail. Or they were ones that were oftentimes shut down periodically, like textile mills and apparel and garments or, or these you know clothing, which oftentimes didn't have twelve months of work a year. They were shut down periodically seasonally. And so that ended. That led to this these these disparities. However, um, there was major activism, especially to break down these racial uh, barriers. And um, civil rights activists, including members of the NAACP and the Congress Racial Equality, did fight hard to include black workers into these good-paying jobs to lift people from these low-paying jobs into better-paying jobs. But the challenge of that always was there's was only so many good jobs, <laughs> and the problem was the good jobs in the island are mostly tied to defense or military spending. And military spending fluctuates. And so therefore, especially in the 60s, a lot of these activists are fighting to get black workers who are working as janitors or day laborers into good-paying jobs building airplanes. But the reality is that some of these airplane contracts are getting cut. So there's actually less jobs available. So as they fight for the integration into these industries, there's less jobs for them to get. And it's always this kind of cha- challenge. Um, it's always a challenge with fair hiring. You want to hire more people fairly, but, you know, jobs are a moving signpost. Sometimes there's more jobs, less jobs, layoffs, everything else. And that was a major challenge on the island, but they were always wetting their prosperity to this very, very unstable industry um, that of course, eventually almost completely collapses by the ni- 1980s because the Cold War uh, wanes and eventually ends.
0: Now you talk about William Hendricks. Tell us that story. Sure. So uh, William Hendricks is one of the great examples
1: of one of these early. Um, I guess you could call him activists. Um, he was a worker. He, he worked at one of the first. The one uh, briefly was the largest employer on the island, Republic Aviation. They built the famous P forty seven, a number of jets and, and planes um, during World War II and in the Cold War. And he was one of the first um, African Americans hired. Um, by this company, which otherwise basically just barred white workers—I'm sorry, barred non-white workers—from working in the company completely. Um, however, he had to fight for that job, and not only had to fight for it, he had to fight to keep it because he wasn't being put in positions that represent reflected his uh, skills. He was an engineer; he had an engineering background. Of course, he wasn't put in engineering at all, um, and he, you know. He was faced with real discrimination on the job, um, and so he needed to kind of fight to get a better job. And so he turned to the federal government, which had, because of pressure from unions, particularly A. Philip Randolph and the sleeping car porters and uh, African American civil rights activists during World War II. And Franklin Roosevelt passed Executive Order 8802, which basically said we're going to desegregate the industry, any industry related to military spending during World War II. And William Hendricks takes advantage of that, and he actually gets in touch with a local um, official who's in charge on the land of making sure these companies are integrating. And this uh, Edward Lawson, the head of this, um, called the Fair Employment Practices Committee, FEPC official, him and Hendricks kind of become friends in the sense that they're going to fight together to make sure Hendricks gets the job that reflects his qualifications. And it gets to the point where Lawson actually has to threaten the company Saying if you do not like hire this man and put him in a position that reflects his skills, we will cancel the contracts for the company. I'll get the Navy in here, and you know the uh, the air. I'm sorry, the Army Air Force, Army Air Corps, and they will cancel the, the contracts, and you will collapse as a company. Essentially, pretty bold, um, and uh, he succeeds eventually. Hendricks does get put into management positions, and ironically enough, Hendricks still has trouble. I mean, there's one story I have in the book where he's um, he's working and he finds that some of his the people under him, he's a manager and some of his work, you know, employees beneath him are playing kind of, They're you know, they're, they're fooling around with him. They're like loosening the screws on his chair. So he sits in and it falls apart. And, you know, they're they're just not they're disrespecting him and others. Um, and the problem is, of course, he turns to Lawson again. But now Lawson doesn't so much care about him because now Lawson has actually succeeded in getting other workers hired <laughs> into the factory, other black workers. So for Lawson, I've won. He hasn't necessarily come to Hendrix's aid the second time because, look, if Lawson, if you know, if Hendrix gets fired, well, I have plenty of other black workers now working at Republic, so the pro- their, their problem is no longer racism. Maybe it's Hendrix. Um, so Hendrix is in many ways a, a pioneer, a pathbreaker into this industry. And he opens it up for others, um, and even though he still faces kind of inter workplace, and there's no doubt this is discrimination. Um, you know, it, at once there's enough black workers working at Republic. His own struggles are no longer paramount, so it's kind of it's a it's a good thing, but of course you kind of feel bad for the guy himself, and the story doesn't end so well for him. But it, but of course, what he accomplishes is huge. He opens up this company and allows thousands of black workers to now you know have a, a economic security and, and and a good good well paying defense industry jobs during World War Two.
0: Now you said there were lots of limits to mobility. For example, the segregated schools didn't prepare the students for the workforce. Tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, and this is really uh, interesting because one thing, you know, schools on the island today, and of course 70 years ago, were deeply segregated. It's a, it's a myth, of course, that the South has all the segregated schools. <laughs> um, and they're segregated partly because of housing, um, because housing is so segregated itself, but also because of you know the way the school district boundaries are drawn and even within school districts. And this is one of the interesting things is that You know, one thing that these school reformers started to really push, and this is early 20th century, but got really picked up after World War II, is tracking students. Meaning, you know, having students what they would say has certain competencies and tracking them to certain career orientations. But the reality is what ended up happening is no surprise they're tracking racially. So even in a school that is integrated – supposedly, meaning there are white and black students in the school, they end up tracking black students into, you know, kind of uh, educational paths that don't prepare them for, let's just say, college or in these instances, in the worst instances, actually prepare them for domestic servants, service or home economics and kind of literally setting them up so that they will become low-wage workers more or less and not offering the opportunity to jump to the other kind of paths and, and, and tracks. So even within school districts, they're setting up the next generation of black students who are, you know, their parents have moved to Long Island and they're hoping for the upward mobility. They're setting up so they will not have that upward mobility because they will not have the same, you know, course curriculum to prepare them for, especially college level work. Because college became such a premium beginning in the 1960s and 70s to get your path into the middle class, especially as the well-paying high school education, you know, jobs that only require high school education were diminishing. The other thing that's interesting is Long Island was very bad at providing vocational training. So, you know, training for like the trades, which of course are well-paying and don't require a college degree. But the reality is only like one, I can't remember the name of a number of time. there's over a hundred school districts in Long Island, and only like one or two actually had a vocational program and they were mostly in white neighborhoods. And so therefore, again, black students are a disadvantage even in the kind of jobs That do not require a college education because their school districts did not have the resources and funding to actually provide vocational training, which is expensive. It's expensive for high schools to take on all the machinery and everything to train students. So unfortunately, that means that that inequality gets perpetuated to the next generation who are also ill-prepared for the suburban kind of, you know, economy.
0: Now, the poor had to have housing. And you talk about this in Chapter 3, Attics, Basements, and Sheds. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so, you know, suburban housing we tend to think of as like the Levitt House, a single-family home It's owned by the family that lives in it. They live by themselves in there, you know, mom, dad, and the two kids or whatever in their picket fence. Um, But the reality is, of course, Long Island was this place where like 90% or 92% of all housing was single-family homes. So it looked like the Levitt myth. A levitt idea, I should say. It's not so much a myth. However, these people, you know, as I said, over over two hundred thousand people are living on the island, but they can't afford to own these homes. So where do they live? Well, what I discovered is they live in those very homes. It's just that those homes are, from the outside, may look like a levitt you know, single family house, but on the inside. The landlord, the person who owns the house, has like carved up, put extra walls and put extra entrances and basically added a bathroom or you know, maybe not even a bathroom, but a kitchen or hot plates or whatever, and turned a single family home into a multi-family apartment. Now, this was not legal across Long Island. And these people were usually, you know, the people who did this with their homes were essentially creating what, what Long Islanders call illegal apartments. Now, they're not technically illegal, you're not breaking a law necessarily, you're not going to go to jail. But they aren't conforming to codes, and everyone here knows there's tons of building and housing and fire and all these different codes. And so, in order to turn a single family house to a multifamily rental, you're probably going to break a code. You're going to run a pipe in a place you're not supposed to. You're going to put a kitchen in a basement. A basement won't have usually has to have two exits. It's not going to have two exits, so it's dangerous. But this is how affordable housing is created on the island. It's not safe. It's not uh, sanitary but it may be affordable enough for the hundreds of thousands of people who can't afford to own the homes that are legally there. And so this becomes kind of the solution, not a good one, but a solution to this problem of affordable housing. If you can get enough money to qualify for a mortgage, you can have a nice affordable home ownership. If you don't, you have to turn to this kind of, you know, subterranean, clandestine housing market where you go to the, you know, you go to somebody, you pay them a bit of rent in cash. You go in their, to their backyard, you go in the back door, and there's a separate apartment for you. And it may not be clean, it may not be safe, it may flood in rainstorms, or in the worst case scenario, unfortunately, I have tragic stories of them burning down, sometimes and people dying. But it was available, and the reality is, it's still the primary way people in suburbs um, who can't afford to own homes how they live. They often live in these illegal housing. Um, which is ubiquitous on the island and, and everywhere else in the country.
0: You use the address thirteen Dogwood Lane. Tell us about this and what does this uh, represent?
1: Yeah, so thirteen Dogwood Lane was an actual Levitt house, and Levitt Levitt and Sons were two very famous. Um, it was a it was a company. It was a father and two sons, and they were they built at the time they built what was then the largest private housing development in America. Um, they actually built four Levitt towns first and largest on the island. They built one in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and they even built one in Puerto Rico. Um, and they were kind of the model. They were on Time Magazine. I think one year they were one of the you know, top people of the year. And because they were after World War II, they were building these very simple Cape Cod houses and they were for veterans primarily, right? They were encouraging, they were gonna help the veteran who comes home from World War II to kind of move up in the world, right? Go from their tenement in Manhattan to a nice single family house. And 13 Dogwood Lane was one of these single family homes. Just like it. Two bedrooms, unfinished second story, and everything else. The first four people owned this house when it was built in 1947 until about 1961, 62, were all exactly my story. They came from the Bronx. They came from Brooklyn, the city. They moved out to Long Island. Now they live in this nice home, and then they move on to somewhere else. However, in 1963 or so, the home was flipped. And it was, uh, was sold not to another homeowner, but instead a, a person who was a guidance counselor. But they decided never to live in the house. And two things are important here. Number one, Levitt and Sons were famous for um, what they call restrictive racial covenants, meaning they added a covenant of restriction on the house that said it could not be sold to someone who was not, as they use a term, Caucasian, a scientific racist term. So all the first three owners were what would be called Caucasians, white people. This new owner was a black guidance counselor. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. That's what we often call blockbusting, where a realtor had turned a house that was supposed to be sold to a white family by law, or at least by the covenant, and sold it instead to a black family. But this guidance counselor decided not to live in the house. Instead, this guidance counselor decided to do exactly what I said before. Chop the house into two different apartments. This guidance council lived somewhere else, and they collected checks from the, the people who lived, the tenants who lived in this house. And more importantly, these tenants were very they were very poor. They were poor enough where they actually qualified for welfare, and therefore they used their welfare checks to pay for this house. And thirteen Dogwood Lane was one house among about a third of the houses in this part of Levittown that were rented out. And they were lent out to absentee landlords, and some of them had two, three families living in these, you know, otherwise two, three-bedroom homes. And many of them were paid through through these welfare checks. And so what began as middle-class suburban single-family homes with mortgages within about 13, 15 years turned into this kind of illegal um, apartment neighborhood. And it was a you know it was one of the one of these areas where people who did not have enough money could find housing, and therefore survive and you know and at least survive if nothing else in suburbia in a place that was otherwise very very expensive.
0: Now you have a picture on page eighty six, and this was um, showing some welfare recipients who were concentrated in Newcastle. Tell us about Newcastle.
1: Yeah, so Newcastle was actually theoretically part of. Levittown. Now back in the day, Levittown was nothing. It was literally potato fields that Levitt and Sons, the builders, had bought and built homes on. And so they actually had a bunch of different farms that they were building on. And one of the areas they built on was this part of Newcastle, which was, you know, when the people who, the very first people moved in there, they were like, oh, I'm in Levittown. Eventually Levittown is created as a school district and a postal code, you know, postal post offices and everything else. And that area would no longer be associated with Levittown. Instead it would be called Newcastle. And so Newcastle is one of these interesting places on the island. There's many of them like this. And these are areas that are what we call unincorporated. They're kind of just areas that don't really have like a downtown. They're not like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example, like you know Back to the Future or something with the downtown and the, the shops and the railroad station and, you know, cute little suburban area. Instead, so these were outside of what we think of as the typical suburban kind of neighborhood. They were areas that were sometimes farms. Sometimes they were areas where people who had low-income or in the early 20th century could like buy a plot of land and build their own house and maybe have a vegetable garden and some chickens. However, Levitt, the Levitt and Sons, bought a piece of this land in Newcastle and they built the Levitt houses. And eventually other builders came in and built suburban housing all in this area as well. But because of this area's pre-Levittown history where it has these kind of sometimes shacks and self-built homes and kind of people who have very low income surviving there, and it ends up being this area of diversity in a place that's in a Long Island, which is otherwise very, very white. And that diversity. Is great because it opens up opportunity for people who aren't white to buy homes, but the difficult part of it is it becomes very much isolated and segregated from the rest of the suburbs, and therefore its tax base is very low, and therefore it has these, these predatory landlords who are coming into the neighborhood and buying up these homes and renting them, and the school district doesn't have enough money to fund its schools, and it leads to all this kind of conflict within the neighborhood As a result of that segregation and that higher levels of poverty in this neighborhood like Newcastle versus its surrounding suburbs, which means this neighborhood, Newcastle, will become much poorer than the suburbs around them, relatively speaking, at least.
0: Now, you talk about black tenants paying more than white tenants for the same unit.
1: Yeah, so this is how segregation meets this kind of illegal apartment situation. And it's hard for me to really find, you know, the evidence is there, right? It's very clear. The numbers are there. Black tenants paid more for illegal apartments or apartments generally than white tenants. Now, the, and the simple answer is it was segregation. But I think the more complicated answer is that since there were so many more white exclusive suburbs, white, you know, poor white people did not have, they couldn't afford a mortgage either. There were more options for them to rent. Whereas black tenants, if they were to rent in a white neighborhood, they might raise the anger of other white neighbors. (laughs) Whereas a white family was less likely to raise eyebrows of white neighbors. And this is one thing because these apartments were illegal. There were people who maybe live on a block that don't like these apartments, right? They see it as a threat to their property values. They see it as congestion, too much traffic, too many kids in the schools. And so they would sometimes try to get the local authorities to come in and shut down these illegal apartments. And so in reality, black tenants who ended up moving to white or integrated neighborhoods tended to be kind of on the wrong side of that enforcement of those laws. They tend to be evicted. So what ended up happening is black tenants often had the place they could live, the, rent, the apartments they could rent were in a very small number of communities. And because there's a very restricted number of apartments available, those rents end up becoming higher. Whereas for white families, there's more choice. There's, they can spread, you know, there's, there's more options and therefore the rents end up being relatively lower.
0: Now you talk about a lease to purchase plan and most of the homes didn't have heat, kitchens or bathrooms. What was going on there?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's crazy about you know, the federal government creates this amazing program called the, F- the Federal Housing Administration, the Mortgage Insurance Program. And this basically created our modern mortgage market. Before the FHA, most mortgages in America before 1934 were essentially like three to five year mortgages. Um, so you've had to put down half the money up front. The rest you have to pay off in three to five years. And most people would have refinanced, but that's, that's difficult. Of course, the FHA creates the 30-year mortgage. With the low, um, you know, the fixed rate and the low, you know, low, low payments, and that makes it much more possible for many more Americans to buy these houses. However, not everyone could qualify for a mortgage, and there are a number of reasons why someone couldn't. They might not have enough income. Until the 1970s, um, women's income, a uh, wife's income, did not count toward mortgage eligibility. So, if a woman was a primary earner, you know, if she was a nurse or whatever it may be, doesn't matter. They couldn't be eligible for a regular mortgage. Um, of course, black families and black home buyers were less likely to be able to get, get it, qualify for a mortgage on the count of race and, uh, you know, and as well sometimes income and other factors. So, those people who weren't eligible for a regular FHA mortgage had to turn to another mortgage market. And unfortunately, many of these mortgages were what we think of as predatory mortgages. And we probably heard the term predatory from 2008, and there are many different kinds of predatory mortgages, but the common one on the island, as well as in like cities like Chicago and all of America, was what they call land installment contracts. And this is where, and we, you may have heard them before, there's rent to buy, lease to purchase, there's all these different terms for them. But essentially what happens is you don't buy a property. You basically pay the person who owns the property, we'll call them the landlord, um, and they have an agreement where if you pay, let's just say you know, every month you pay where you get 20% of the home's value, then they'll give you the deed. Or maybe as high as 100%. So you're renting with the hope of one day owning the property, or you're leasing with one day of hoping to get the right to purchase the property. So it's not the same thing as actually owning it. You don't have a right to foreclosure. You can just be evicted because you're a tenant. Um, you know, even though the contract may sound some, some something, if you miss something that's, you know, in the contract you didn't notice, like you missed a payment by a day or um, the payment wasn't enough money or whatever it may be, the landlord has the right to just evict you. And so this was predatory because the people who own these rent-to-buy and lease-to-purchase plans, they would use this stuff to bring in people but never, ever hand over the property after years. And they would kick them out and get someone else and kick them out. And this, again, led to this instability. And one example I have is this tragedy of this place in Central Islip called Carlton Park, where these cheap homes were built just like Levitt Homes. They were not the best condition. They were actually cheaper than Leavitt Homes. They had some real problems with them. Uh, the heat didn't work, for example, very well. And... Basically, it was the houses were in such poor condition that the people who originally bought them, who had regular mortgages, they started selling to get out as quickly as possible. And eventually, the banks would no longer, um, you know, extend mortgages to anyone who bought these houses. They just, they saw them as a bad, you know, a bad investment. So the only thing available to buy these homes were these predatory mortgages. And essentially, the only way to get into this neighborhood was through these predatory mortgages. And eventually, what happened is neighborhood of Central Islip is... These predatory mortgages keep bringing people out, they keep evicting them, bringing them in, evicting them. That doesn't even end up proving very lucrative. And eventually this landlord named um, James Northrup ends up buying up 150 of these 300 homes. And he just decides, I'm just gonna rent these homes. Like, forget about doing these predatory mortgages. So this neighborhood of 300 homes has half of the homes are landlord, you know, well rented. And the other half are a mix of these predatory mortgages and some regular mortgages, but a lot of instability. And it leads to this neighborhood becoming you know, much poor and having a lot more difficulties of the kind I described.
0: Chapter four, you talk about fair without full employment and the 1960s job guarantee program. Did the needy families receive help?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the interesting things about the 1960s in particular is, um, during 1960s, Lyndon Johnson, you know, our president following JFK, uh, Create the war on poverty, and he was promising we're going to end poverty in America. You know, it's really heady times, um, you know, because America is so prosperous. So it's like, you know, how can we have this poverty amidst all this plenty? And so, the war on poverty was a, you know, a, a pretty ambitious idea. Um, and on the island, a lot of local politicians, in particular, were really they were really eager to be like, hey, look, we're the richest place in America. If America is the richest country in the world, we're the richest place in America. If you know, we should be able to end poverty. And so, a lot of these uh, activists. Uh, and policymakers on the local level get involved in creating programs to try to help people, um, poor people, get better jobs. And the idea is, hey, if we can, we can eradicate poverty. And in fact, one county executive named Eugene Nickerson, he was hoping, hey, if I can get, you know, if this becomes a success, I'm going to become a governor of New York, and I can become president. So he's kind of hinging his political career on ending poverty in, in on the island. And so, as you said, do they help needy families? Well, it's complicated. Unfortunately, the war on poverty was very focused on the idea that the problem of poverty is the problem of poor people. They're not motivated enough. They don't have the right skills. Uh, they may be discriminated against, um, and they're, or they don't have enough access. You know, they don't have a car or whatever it may be to get to jobs. And unfortunately, on the island, what they discovered as they kept implementing programs, behavioral training, um, regular job training, they had a bus program where they actually had free buses from poor neighborhoods like Central uh, Car- Carlton Park or like Newcastle, and they were going to bus them to these industrial parks where all these jobs were. And they kept thinking, once we do this, these people get jobs and poverty will end. And what they discovered when they started doing that is that, you know, when people got on these buses, they drove these, bus- rode these buses to the industrial park, they get out, uh, out of the bus And they discovered that the jobs in the industrial park pay the same wage as the job they already have. (laughs) And so what the war on poverty actors realized is, wait a second, there's this low wage market, job market, that's like all over Long Island. And like, we can't solve poverty if the jobs we're getting people are poverty jobs, are jobs that pay low wages. That's all that's available. And so they kind of get frustrated. And uh, by the late 1960s, the county executive, Eugene Nickerson, actually Gets involved in this idea of creating a job guarantee, and this was a very popular idea in the '60s. Um, the March on Washington, you know, Martin Luther King's march um, was for jobs and freedom. And one of the things they pushed for right after that Jobs and Freedom march was the Freedom Budget, and this is the idea of, and this goes back to the New Deal, this idea of guaranteeing every American who can work a job, you know, create a job, and then therefore they can work and they can have skills and they can, uh, you know, contribute to society. And so Eugene Nickerson says, "We're well, going to, you know, in Nassau County, in Long Island, we're going to create the first job guarantee program in the country. And that means anyone who walks into our office, we're going to create a job, you know, job in daycare services, elder care, um, public parks and local construction, uh, schools. And these people, I mean, we're going to train them and they can get a job. And it was a very popular idea. And unfortunately, uh, 1969, um, you know, LBJ steps down, doesn't run for re-election, the Democratic Party loses uh, the election, Richard Nixon takes over as a Republican president, and he more or less cuts the War on Poverty funding. And so Eugene Nickerson uh, doesn't get his job guarantee program off the ground because it was was reliant on this federal funding. And it was supposed to be an experiment to see whether, you know, guaranteeing people well-paying jobs and just guaranteeing it to them would actually help them.
0: Chapter 5 and 6. You talk about poverty being a problem of place.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting thing, and and one thing we focus on a lot in America is the idea of poverty being a problem of place. Meaning, like there are places where poverty almost just like you know people concentrate, they, you know, the poor concentrate in certain neighborhoods, and therefore these places create these kind of almost like generational levels of poverty, right? And it's kind of like it's it's stuck there. But what I found is it's not really the case there in the sense that like it's the job market, it's it's you know welfare policy that creates poverty. However, poverty is a problem of place because some places are ill-equipped. I mean, they don't have the resources to really end poverty. And even in a prosperous suburb, it turns out that well, you know, Alamo Island there are some neighborhoods that are very very wealthy and some neighborhoods that aren't so wealthy. And no surprise, those neighborhoods that aren't so wealthy have a concentration of poverty. And therefore, they lack the resources to really deal with resolving poverty, with, you know, creating the kind of schools that can really, you know, provide education that can help people or, or building. They don't have the resource to build housing that's safe and sanitary and affordable. And what's interesting, though, is and I, I would argue to this day, but especially in the post-war period, at the federal level and even at the state level, the idea was, well, if it's a city, it's poor and if it's a suburb, it's rich. So if we're gonna build, you know, a housing project or we're gonna move people, you know, to solve poverty, we gotta build housing, good housing in suburbs, and we gotta move people from cities to suburbs where the jobs are. But in reality, what I show in the book is that they just thought all suburbs are rich. But what ended up happening is they often chose suburbs that weren't so rich. And so the people in these neighborhoods, of course, oppose this, you know, let's just say low-income housing in their neighborhood but they oppose it because they're like, look, we already have a lot of poverty in our neighborhood. Like, you guys want to build this project here. It's not going to help the people you're going to move in, nor is it going to help us. It's going to make our neighborhoods poorer. And I have examples of this, um, a place called East Massapequa, which was in this school district that had a 50% child poverty rate. Half the kids in the school qualified for free lunches, which was a, back then a sign of, of low income. And they were going to build more housing. And they're like, well, build it somewhere else. And it kind of became this interesting battle where, Everyone's saying where the poor should be put to end poverty. You know, we should put them in the rich neighborhood. We should put them in this neighborhood. We should get them out of here or whatever it may be. And it kind of became this fruitless fight over like where the poor should be put, rather than, of course, just saying, well, what if we just end poverty? It doesn't matter where they live. <laughs> we, you know, that and unfortunately, this conversation about city versus suburb, about where poverty is, came to dominate. And it's, I would argue, it still dominates our discussion of poverty today. It's oftentimes where poverty is concentrated, not like that the existence of poverty is a problem. And we, it wouldn't poverty wouldn't be concentrated somewhere if there wasn't poverty. Um, and I know that's a very simplistic kind of way to put it, but the book gets into it in better detail, I promise. But <laughs> but the the, the point uh, fundamentally is that we're on Long Island, this battle over city versus suburb in reality plays out where it's very evident that it's actually a battle of suburbs that are poor versus suburbs that are wealthy. And neither of them are able to really solve this problem because you know, the tax base and the resources are so locally bounded, like very small neighborhoods fund the schools. So if that neighborhood doesn't have a lot of ta- a big tax base, it can't afford to even fund itself and forget about adding people to the neighborhood, even though it's suburban, even though it has single family homes, even though on, on, in the kind of mythos it's a prosperous place, in reality it wasn't and it still isn't.
0: Now, you brought up some really interesting points about the labor shortage in the 1940s and how employers changed citizenship rules. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so, you know, this is
1: an interesting thing uh, about like, like, especially if you want fair housing or equal employment. And the one thing that's really powerful is when you have, you know, a, a lot of jobs and, you know, not theoretically, especially during World War II, not enough people to fill it. And so this is a great example during World War II. It's not that all of a sudden these companies became less racist than they were before <laughs> World War II. It's because they can't keep being racist unless they're going to run out of workers to hire. And so what happens on Long Island is... Um, because there's so much demand in the entire country for work. you know. Obviously, you know, nine, what, 10 million people are in the military and the armed services fighting the war. And as we know, World War II is famous for women entering, you know, not the first time, but the most recent time in that point in history, women entering the workforce and factory workers. And there's so much demand for work that on Long Island, there's enough people that live there where they don't have to like bring people in from elsewhere, but they want the federal government actually asked what was called the War Manpower Commission. It was an, uh, a commission that was charged with finding enough workers to fill factory jobs. They actually said, "Listen, we're not we're not going to send you any workers. Like we're sending people to California, you know, and to Texas and to Seattle, Washington. We don't have enough workers there, and they have to build stuff to fight, you know, Japan. On the East Coast, we, there's enough people. We just have to get them out of their homes and into these factories." And so what happens with these companies and with the WMC is they begin to relax the requirements they used to have. For example, early in the war, they refused to hire Italian um, Americans because they felt like they might be um, sympathetic to the fascists you know, in, in Italy and Germany. They relax that requirement. They begin relaxing the citizenship requirement. You know, Many people here, after 1924, the Immigration Restriction Act, there are you know, millions of people living in America who didn't actually have citizenship. And so they begin to, I well, hope that's still coming out. Um, they begin to hire them. And then um, finally, of course, they begin to break down their racial discrimination against black workers. And it's mainly because they just needed to hire people so they could forget all their beliefs about whether women or or immigrants or African-Americans are capable of working. They need people. And of course, very quickly, the, all these people, women, immigrants, and African-Americans, um, show that they can work well <laughs> and do well. And in fact, what it's interesting is by like the end of the war, you know, the people of uh, these diverse, you know, workforces are playing baseball and sports together. They're having birthday parties together. They're hanging out like no surprise. All those racist beliefs, you know, melt away as people are exposed to one another, work together, see their common interests. And at least briefly during the war, you know, th- these, these people come together because they work together. They're, they're, they're equals in this workplace, and I think it has that huge benefit.
0: Now, the last chapter, the post-war years, what was your um, whole impression of what's going on, what happened?
1: Yeah, so unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of the things we saw happening early in the war, or i sorry, early in the post-war period, 1945, 1970, never really resolved. And if anything, most, lots of stuff uh, just accelerates You know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, because Long Island, there's not much housing being built, those illegal apartments become the main way in which people find housing. In fact, in the 1980s, for example, about half of all the housing units built, and I use built in quotes, were just people making apartments in their homes, not necessarily legally. Many of them are illegal. And so that informal housing thing doesn't just house the poorest Um, Long Islanders anymore. It comes to house all sorts of people, young couples, um, you know, middle class people who may have gotten a foreclosed Ohio home, they have to move into a rented apartment. And by the 21st century, it's estimated about one in five homes on Long Island or housing units on Long Island are actually just illegal apartments that people are inhabiting. So that thing that began is a small thing to mostly house mostly poor people now houses millennials zoomers you know elderly people who can't afford a mortgage anymore it really houses all sorts of people the other thing of course is as the defense industry kind of wanes especially on the island and a lot of defense jobs move to california they moved to washington state they moved to texas there's less of these good paying jobs for people with a high school degree and that means that they end up working in services you know um, fast food restaurants, Targets, Walmarts, you know, uh, malls, things like that. And these jobs don't pay as well. So there's way more of these low wage jobs. So therefore, you know, the next generation of people are less likely to be homeowners. And they essentially have two options. They either move south or west as many along in New York was one of the you know, fastest declining places in the 1980s still has a out, you know, a people leaving the state and Long Island, especially. So they move to the Carolinas, they move you know, to Arizona, they move to Florida. Or, they make do with less than they used to. They live with their, you know, their parents well until they're adults. They uh, rent these homes, and so I talk a lot about how um, the problems that existed for the poor in the 1960s are really now challenges that many more people on the island face, and I would argue many more people in America now face. And I don't want to say it's all bad. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with multi-generational households. And a return to that may be a nice thing. You know, <laughs> you know we support each other more in family and everything else. But the American dream and the post-war period, especially Long Island, came to create this image of what middle-class life is like. And it's that nuclear family, multiple cars, picket fence, good-paying job. And that is, you know, it's disappearing. And so, you know, I think in many ways, I like to think... Sorry, not to sound full of myself. But my history tells us more about like what the 21st century will look like, and therefore how we, you know, how we de- grapple with these problems or some of the issues that um, Long Islanders grappled with in the 1960s and 70s.
0: What is the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book?
1: Oh, okay, that's a great. I like that question. Um, I would say two things. Number one, um, poverty is a choice, meaning um, it's not a choice by the person but rather it's a choice by policy. You know, uh, our government and state governments have a major role in in how how much poverty there is in a country and who is poor and how they're poor. Um, And I think my book tries to show that the United States created the prosperity, the government created the prosperity that suburbs represent, but it also created the poverty that you see in suburbs as well as elsewhere in the country. And so therefore, if we want to reduce poverty, we want to reduce inequality, we need to look to policy and um, policy that makes jobs more plentiful, makes those jobs well-paying, gives people rights on those jobs. It also makes housing more plentiful. It gives people a right to uh, live in homes. Um, And that means if they live in an illegal apartment, that doesn't mean they should be punished for it. (laughs) They didn't choose to make that apartment illegal. The landlord did. Um, And so I want people to take away this idea that like, um, you know, the prosperity that we had in the post-World War II period was a result of federal policy, and the poverty we had was a, result of pe- uh, was a result of federal policy as well. And if we want to rectify those things, we need to look to policy. We can make changes. Change is possible. World War II reflects that. Uh, obviously, it was a horrific reason to end poverty, <laughs> and it wasn't purposely meant to end poverty, but that war effort did create this prosperity that was spread pretty widely among Americans. Um, and I would argue that the 21st century with climate change, we're going to need that mobilization again, not for a war, but to, you know, keep the earth and, and, and keep ourselves alive and prosperous. And we can do it in an egalitarian way if we look to Long Island's history as a kind of uh, a blueprint for what is you know, a better way forward.
0: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on?
1: Oh, I'm just so happy this one's done. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting you say that I I am doing a a suburban history again, and I really want to look at um, uh, the materials that end up making our homes. I know this is a bit of a thing, but my goal for my next book is to look at how oil in many ways has come to solve many of the challenges of building suburban housing. And not just in terms of like cars and heating, but like piping and and insulation and everything else. And try to look at how like we've come to use oil, which is a finite resource to resolve many of the cost challenges that come with gigantic single family homes that are very expensive to maintain and build. And that's kind of my goal to look at how oil came to solve all these problems. And then therefore the challenges we have in the 21st century with being so dependent on oil for our, our material well-being in America.
0: Well, we'll be looking forward to that next book. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much,
1: Deirdre, for having me.